welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, June 26, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. Dennett is perhaps best known for his provocative arguments that our human consciousness and free will are the result of physical processes in the brain. That, and his outspoken atheism and arguments in favor of evolution. Dennett is a philosopher and co-director of the Center for Cognitive Studies at Tufts University. This week, we're rebroadcasting a podcast from June 2007, when Dennett describes the evolution of human culture, an evolution he says is a second information highway swifter and more reliable than genetic transmission. Speaking of evolution, Richard Dawkins is coming to the Academy in October to launch his new book, The Greatest Show on Earth. We know it's early, but this event is sure to sell out. Get your advance tickets online at scienceandthecity.org. Before we start, we've got some exciting news. The New York Academy of Sciences has a brand new website. Be sure to visit our new Science in the City site and update your bookmarks. Also, if you subscribe to our podcast via our RSS feed, you can get the new link for our new feed on scienceandthecity.org. Got feedback or questions about our new site? Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org, and we'd be happy to help. I was fortunate to have a focus of uh, my attention the other day when uh, in the New York Times, David Brooks had a piece that many of you may have seen called The Age of Darwin. And... In that, he made an interesting claim. According to this view, the view of the Darwinians like me, human beings, like all other creatures, are machines for passing along their genetic code. We are driven primarily by a desire to perpetuate ourselves and our species. I want to point out that this second sentence is a mistake. It is what I'm going to call the standard mistake. It's not Brooks's mistake. Uh, he's simply articulating and expressing a view that's very much out there. And uh, the main point of my talk today is to show that this is a mistake and show, more importantly, what we have to replace it with. First, a little thought experiment. Not so much a thought experiment as a fact that was first uh, drawn to my attention by the green engineer, Paul McCready, the man who created the Gossamer Albatross, a uh, wonderful, wonderful visionary uh, engineer, he calculated that about 10,000 years ago, now this is after we'd got agriculture up and running, but soon after the birth of agriculture, we were a minor primate. Uh, our total weight, if you put all the human beings on, on, on alive at that time 10,000 years ago, you put them on the scales, threw in their cattle, threw in their, their, their dogs and cats, their, their pets, maybe a tenth of a percent of all the terrestrial vertebrate biomass. That is, doesn't include the insects and the worms, doesn't include the fish in the sea. Fraction of one percent. What do you suppose it is today? Any guesses? Ten? Any, any, do I hear any advances on ten? Ninety? You're going in the right direction, but not enough. It's ninety-eight percent today. Now, most of that's cattle. But it's astonishing. And he has a wonderful elegiac passage where he comments on this. I want to share that with you. 
Over billions of years on a unique sphere, chance has painted a thin covering of life, complex, improbable, wonderful, and fragile. Suddenly, we humans, a recently arrived species no longer subject to the checks and balances inherent in nature, have grown in population, technology, and intelligence to a position of terrible power. We now wield the paintbrush. That is the simple truth. And the question is, how did that happen? Well, as he says, it's due to our technology and intelligence that we have accomplished this lightning change of the planet. Over the 10,000 years is a, is a very short period of time in biological time. How did this happen? This is what I want to talk about. And in order to understand it, we have to go back a few years. Not just 10,000 years. I want to go back more than a billion years to the famous prokaryotic invasion that led to the eukaryotic cell. This event, which uh, is now in the textbooks, was really first articulated and made into science by a wonderful scientist named Lynn Margulis. And she didn't first articulate the idea, but she's the one who first got scientists to really take it seriously. Similarly, Darwin wasn't the first person to put forward the idea of evolution by natural selection, but he's the one that made science out of it. Now, what she showed is that for a billion years and more on this planet, there was just one very simple kind of life form, the prokaryote. That's what you see on the left. Quite simple thing. One day, one prokaryote just happened to enter another prokaryote. And the question is, was it A eating B, or was it B invading A? When you're a prokaryote, it's hard to tell the difference, really. <laughs> if A dissolves B and reuses the parts, then A ate B. If that dissolution doesn't happen, then what's, what you've got is an invasion. And that's what happened. And now we had a team, two prokaryotes, one wrapped around the other, and the, and the team was more powerful, had greater fitness than either one by themselves. That was the birth of the eukaryotic cell, one of the most momentous events in, in evolutionary history. You see a eukaryote on the right. How momentous was it? Every living thing that's big enough to see with the naked eye, in other words, everything that we normally think of as, as part of the biosphere, they're all eukaryotes. Multicellular life is basically all eukaryotes. There's hardly anything that you can see without the use of a microscope, which is a prokaryote. So it's a huge, a huge change to the biosphere made, made possible by the eukaryotic revolution. Now, why on earth am I telling you that? Why do we have to go back more than a billion years in order to understand human culture? Because I want to say that actually it's the same sort of phenomenon. I want to describe to you what I call a cascade of cranes. In, in my book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, I distinguish between cranes and skyhooks. Skyhooks are miraculous uh, hooks that you can hang in the sky and you can lift things, uh, even, but there aren't any, as you know. There's no such thing as a skyhook. But there's lots of cranes. And what's happened in the history of evolution is that evolution itself has evolved cranes which make evolution itself in local areas faster and more efficient. So we have a whole series of speed-ups or optimizations of parts of evolution. Uh, the eukaryotic revolution was one. That made possible the evolution of sex. Before that, everything, everything uh, was asexually reproducing. Sex mixes up genes in a wonderful way 
that wasn't why it evolved, but once it's there, it speeds up evolution. That made possible multicellularity and cell differentiation because those eukaryotic cells, having more parts, much more complex, they could specialize, and you could get a division of labor. And that made possible multicellular beings like us, where we have many different kinds of cells in our bodies. We couldn't do that if we didn't have very complex cells. And then I'm going to put these together, language and human culture, because they co-evolve together, and it's not clear that one came first. These, these are great cranes. They've changed the whole nature of evolution on this planet. And it's this, this, this last one, language and culture, which I'm putting together that I want to talk about. Now, there's a lovely book by the late, great John Maynard Smith and the great and happily alive Ursh Zatmari, who was in Budapest at the Collegium Budapest, uh, called The Major Transitions of Evolution. And, and they don't call them cranes. That's because they published their book before I wrote mine. But that's what they are. And now Ursh calls them cranes. What I want to claim is that the huge access of power that we got that enabled that 10,000-year leap that's covered the planet is not primarily a matter of brain power. That is to say, it's more a matter of the division of labor made possible by human culture. In other words, our big brains are as much an effect as a cause of our culture. It's because of cultural innovations that our brains acquired the powers that then also helped to enhance their enlargement. Now, this raises a very interesting question. Do other species have culture? And the answer is so often, in fact, usually always, almost always in evolution is yes and no. Because everything is, everything is gradual and accepted in evolution. There's a lovely book. One of the things I'm going to do today is talk about some books that I highly recommend. Not a one of them is mine. Uh, here's a book that, uh, by Avital and Jablanca, two very good evolutionary biologists, called Animal Traditions. What they argue, and with much supporting evidence, is that a lot of the instincts that we know about in animals are not, in fact, instincts in the sense that they're passed along genetically. They're, in, in fact, passed on from parent to offspring, not through the germline, not through the genes, but through uh, social learning, through 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 uh, 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 offspring, uh, learning this from their parents just because they're together. And uh, I think very well of this book. Uh, and by the way, if you want to just remember how you can tell, how can you tell whether the information came through the genes or is passed on? Very simple test, and there's many varieties of it. It's called cross-fostering. You take, say, the eggs from one species out of the nest and put them in another species' nest, and you take those eggs and you put them there, and you see which song they sing. They, they, do they sing the song of their adoptive parents, or do they sing the song of their, don't say biological, say their genetic parents. Because adoptive parents are just as biological as genetic parents. And one of the messages that I have today is biology isn't all about genes. Genes are just a part of biology. And it turns out that a lot of things that we thought were passed through the germline, that is, that were genetic, are not. They're passed from parent to offspring by some sort of teaching or learning or imitation. Mother Nature is not a gene centrist. A little bumper sticker for you. 
Yes, genes are important, but there's another whole highway of information flow. And in some regards, it's swifter and even more reliable. And if something can be passed on from parent to, to offspring, not through the genes, but through some sort of imitation, saves the trouble and the time of bothering to work it out in the genes. Biology is not just genes. Here's another book with a, with a title very much like that. This is uh, Pete Richardson and Rob Boyd's lovely new book, Not by Genes Alone. Some of you may be familiar with their earlier work. Um, it's difficult. It's challenging. There's a lot of mathematics. Pete Richardson likes to say when he gives talks on this that his, his professor said to him that mathematics was like sex. It's very important, but you don't want to do it in public. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, their earlier writings, including their anthology, you have all the scientific papers with all the math in them. And those, those are, uh, for, for many of us, really daunting books. Wonderful. Now they've finally written a book which has not a mathematical, hardly a mathematical symbol in it. I highly recommend it, not by genes alone. It's not just a textbook. This is a, this is a whole manifesto of their way of looking at the evolution of culture. And I highly recommend it. I'm going to be saying a bit more about it. What we see in this case is that in species that are altricial, that is to say where the young and their parents coexist together for a while, think about which species, do they get, do the offspring get to know their parents? Do they ever see their parents? And if they're fish, say the answer is no. They, they, they never see their, parents are long gone before they're born. And many species, of course, are sort of hit the ground running when they're, they're pre-cocial, when, they when they first are born. Species that have a childhood are the altricial species. And if you have a childhood, you're hanging around with your parents. They're protecting you. They're also informing you. In those species, what we have is this second information highway. And it's been optimized by natural selection, by genetic selection, over millions and millions of years. So that it is an efficient Information superhighway. And its original purpose is simply as an extra way of getting information from the parents to the offspring. But once it's in place, once it gets optimized, there's plenty of room for hitchhikers. Plenty of room for what Richardson and Boyd call rogue cultural variants to spread. This is not vertical transmission from parent to offspring. It's horizontal, peer to peer, or uh, oblique from non-related elders to young and so forth. So once we get transmission possibilities, which are not from parent to offspring, now the equation changes dramatically because now there's no longer even a defeasible guarantee that it will be in your best interest to take in this information. Presumably, parents and offspring, in most regards, share the same interests. So that, in most regards, if you have a sort of default rule, if mom and dad tell me, I should believe it. That, that bias in favor of believing your parents is built right into your genes, almost certainly, because it's not just a human thing. It's, it's in all altricial species. But once you start getting serious inroads from non-relatives, that guarantee is simply gone. And that's when you get what 
Boyd and Richardson call rogue cultural variants, and they begin to play a big role. Not in other species, only in us. And there's some interesting reasons why that should be. And to lead up to it, I want to take you through a little example of mine, which freaks out a lot of people. But I think that's what's good about it. Suppose you were out in the meadow and you saw an ant that was climbing a blade of grass, and you watch it, and it climbs, and it climbs. And if you flick it off, it climbs, and it climbs. And if you flick it off, it climbs again. It's like Sisyphus rolling his rock, climbing and climbing. And it climbs until it reaches the very top of the blade of grass. And you think, what on earth is this ant doing? It's expending a lot of energy. It's working very hard. What's it getting out of this? What benefit accrues to the ant for all of this labor? Well, if you ask that question, you're asking, as it turns out, the wrong question. Because no benefit at all, no benefit at all accrues to the ant. Well, then why is it doing it? Is it just a fluke? Yes, it is just a fluke. It's a lancet fluke. It's a tiny parasitic brain worm called Dicrocelium dendriticum, which has climbed into the ant's brain because in order to continue its life cycle, in order for it to have offspring, it has to get into the belly of a cow or a sheep or some other ruminant. And the best way to do that is to hijack a passing ant, climb into its brain, and drive it up a blade of grass like an all-terrain vehicle. <laughs> so while salmon are so heroically struggling upstream so they can spawn, Dicrocelium dendriticum, and as you can see, it's not exactly a nuclear scientist. It's got, I would say, the IQ of a carrot doesn't even have a nervous system. But it's brilliantly designed to play this trick, to get into the ant's brain and drive the ant up the blade of grass, improving its chances of being eaten by a cow or a sheep. This is one, if I had more time, I'd run through half a dozen other lovely examples of parasite manipulation of host. Lots of cases of this in the biological literature. Now, that's pretty scary. We have a hijacker, a parasite that infects the brain and induces suicidal behavior on behalf of a cause other than one's own genetic fitness. How spooky. How awful. Gee, I wonder if that ever happens to us. Well, yes. I'd just like to remind you that the word Islam in Arabic means submission or surrender of self-interest to the will of Allah. But it's not just Islam that has this theme. Christianity has it as well. This is a bad photograph of a parchment manuscript that actually my mother found for me in a Paris bookstall 50 years ago and more. And um, the words on it are quite wonderful. I don't suppose you can read them in this light. It's not a very good picture anyway. But I'll tell you. Oh, actually, I do want to point out, and I'll use the pointer on here, I guess, to point out, there's a lovely uh, typo right here. Um, wait a minute, let me get back to where it is. Okay, what does this say? It says, Semen est verbum dei sator autem Christus. The word of God is a seed, and the sower of the seed is Christ. All who hear him will get eternal life. So there's a quid pro quo. This is the sort of honeybee theory of Christianity. You carry the seed, we give you eternal life. 
give you a little, a little uh, nectar for carrying the seed for us. Um, the typo, if you can see it, now where is it gone again? It's gone away. The Christus is spelled, this is of course in Latin, but the Christus is spelled with two Greek letters first, chi and rho. And whoever does the, the copyist didn't know that the rho was an R and has put an R after it. So we have a, we have a, a, a miscorrection there, right there. See, you see, chi, rho, R. Christus. So just a nice example of mindless copying of text. Notice it's very, it's a mutation. It's a mutation in a text. Interesting text at that. The word of God is a seed, and the sower of the seed is Christ. That's not quite the same as the Allah Islam idea, but here it is, and it's, you'll recognize that it's in Christianity. The heart of worship is surrender. Surrendered people obey God's word even if it doesn't make sense. Those two quotes come from a very, very successful book, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, which has sold over 40 million copies since it was published a few years ago. A very fit text indeed. What we have here are what I would call ideas to die for. Islam, Christianity, but not just those. Think of all the people that died and killed for communism in the 20th century, or for democracy, or for justice, or for freedom. There are many ideas to die for. I live in Massachusetts, just to the north. The license plates look like this. Live free or die. You can't put it much more clearly than that. I want to draw your attention to a fact, though. The moose may live in New Hampshire, but the moose doesn't understand this at all. This is not a sentiment the moose could appreciate. In fact, the moose, like all other species, except us, has just one sumum bonum, and that is to make more mooses. Now, I'm a grandfather. How many grandparents do we have here now? How many parents? How many would like to be grandparents and great-grandparents? Right, and now, how many think that's the most important thing in life? I'm surprised we actually have a few. Usually, usually I, I say, you know, how many of you think that more important than anything else is having more great-grandchildren than your neighbor? Hardly anybody thinks that's true. But that makes us entirely unlike all the other species on the planet. We are the species that don't care about that more than everything else. We have found values that we put even higher than our than our uh, uh, Darwinian imperative. And that's the big mistake. The big mistake that David Brooks was expressing was the idea that somehow all of our, all of our values have to reduce somehow to, to our, our biological fitness. It's just not true. How could this ever happen, though? Doesn't the logic of evolution require it? No, precisely because of human culture. Precisely because what happened more than 10,000 years ago, but not more than a million years ago, is that there were these primates, see, and their brains got invaded by ideas to die for. And the resulting animals, these primates with infected brains, 
we're more fit than the others. And we're capable of a division of labor that the others weren't capable of. And so, now that they had these infected brains, they could start thinking outside the box. So it's a biological explanation, but it isn't in terms of genes. It's in terms of the evolution of culture. This is a difference. This difference between us, let me remind you of another difference. How many of you, as adults, can digest raw milk? That's extraordinary when you think about it, because we're the only mammal that really has that. In general, mammals lose the ability to digest milk after they're weaned. It's an infantile thing. This is a prolongation of infancy in us. We know exactly which genes are involved, and we know how it works, and we know that it only really exists in those human lineages that have dairy farming in their ancestry. Here's a case where culture, dairy farming, that's not passed down through the genes. That's a cultural transmission. Has been potent enough to create a selection effect on our genes. So we have an, we have an interaction between cultural evolution and genetic evolution. There are, in fact, presumably lots of others. That's the, that's the best one that's been discovered so far. So where did you get your values from, if not from your genes? You got them from your culture. Well, where did the culture come from? And here's the hardest part of the message for many people. It is not a miraculous gift from God. It didn't just get given to us by some skyhook at some point. It had to evolve too. It is just as much a product on the tree of life as a beaver dam or a bird's nest or a spider's web. It has far surpassed those other artifacts in its complexity and in the ways we can think about it. But if we don't take on the responsibility of showing how it could evolve, how we will never understand why we're not just animals, why we're persons. Its ideas, not worms that hijack our brains. And these are ideas that replicate. Now, the name for those, of course, is memes. And that comes from Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, now just 30 years old. Now, a lot of people don't realize how uh, important a thinker Richard Dawkins is, is. Since he writes so well and so vividly and is so controversial, they think he's a sort of, sort of glorified science journalist. In fact, he's a great biologist. If you doubt that, you want to read the book that was published along with the new edition of The Selfish Gene that was just published last year, Richard Dawkins, How a Scientist Changed the Way We Think. Uh, that's a wonderful book with essays by some of the world's best evolutionary biologists talking about just how important his, his uh, contributions to evolution were. I think here in New York City, a lot of people don't realize how important Dawkins is because for many years, they got their evolution from the late, great Stephen Jay Gould, who was his uh, uh, ardent opponent. And so they, they tended to believe the bad-mouthing that he got from Gould. Stop believing it. Find out about a great evolutionary thinker, one of, the, one of the best of the 20th and 21st century. In that book, he introduced the idea of memes, but I want to uh, just back up a little bit. Now, what you're looking at here is a tree of life. It doesn't look much like a tree because you're looking at it from a bird's eye point of view. You're looking down on it from above. And if you look right in the center, you see that little sort of a, a, a Y shape. That's 
where the last universal common ancestor is. That is the living form, which is the ancestor of all living forms on the planet today. Of all of the eukarya, there's still plenty of eukarya, like bacteria, around. Of all of the archaea, those recently discovered simple unicellular life forms. And then down at the bottom, we have the eukarya. And the uh, scientist who did this, this is already out of date, but it was 1997 in science. And he's put us out there uh, on, on a branch on the eukarya, uh, Homo, along with two other uh, 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 well-known genus names, with Coprinus and Zaya, which are our close neighbors, of course, mushrooms and corn. Uh, yes, you're related to every ear of corn and every mushroom in the world. And quite recently, compared with your relationship, for instance, to other things on the tree of life. Now, Homo sapiens is remarkable because it has culture. And our power depends on the culture that permits us to divide labor and share expertise. Thank you. Here we have a cow. Who designed the cow? Well, a lot of people have done a lot of really interesting uh, work over the last few hundred years, actually for over the last few thousand years, trying to improve the breed. But there's the aurochs, which the cow evolved from by deliberate breeding. That was the wild ungulate that is the ancestor of all cows. Who designed the aurochs? Natural selection designed the aurochs. That's it. No human designers involved there at all. But then human beings came along, and they first they just domesticated the cow, and they hardly knew what they were doing. And gradually they've learned more and more what they're doing, and they've got to the point where they've really reverse-engineered the cow, figured out what all its parts are, how they should best be put together, how you optimize one against the other, what the trade-offs are, and so forth. So now we have a very sophisticated beast, interestingly closely related to the aurochs, with lots of features that it shares with the aurochs, but a lot of features which have been optimized for us. We're the owners of the cows. Not so much for the cow as for us. But as you know, they benefited the cow too, if you want to think about just fitness. The aurochs is extinct. Cows, that's a large part of that 98%. Cows have done very well if what you're interested in is fitness. So here's a little riddle. What does spoken languages and folk music, I mean real folk music, folk songs, not Woody Guthrie, I'm talking about folk songs that have no author, that have no composer. Greensleeves might be a good example. What do they have in common with squirrels, pigeons, rats, barn swallows? They're not domesticated, but they are designed by natural selection to thrive in human company. There are species which are, nobody owns them, chimney swifts and barn swallows, but they have been evolved by natural selection to do very well in human company. So there's also wild memes. There are words. Think about this. There are lots of usage mavens, you know, William Sapphire and people like that. They're unnecessary. Words can take care of themselves very well without human stewards. You don't need them for language to thrive. They thrive the way squirrels and rats thrive, because they can. Well, who designed the treasures that we share? 
Well, some of the design is done by great heroes of invention and discovery. Pythagoras, Plato, Descartes, Newton, Shakespeare, Austin, Curie, and many, many others. But nobody designed language. Nobody designed tonal music. Nobody designed folk religion. These things were designed by natural selection, just the way the aurochs was, by differential replication of cultural items. Not genes. It's not really to do with genes at all. This is the differential replication of competing memes. Now, we need the mimetic level because we have to understand how this brilliant design could happen without a designer. No human being invented language. didn't have to be invented because it got invented by evolution itself. Now, we have some inter nice intermediate cases. Did anybody invent the decimal number system? Probably no one person gets even much of the credit, we, and it's lost. We don't know. Did anyone invent the map? Did anyone invent money? There's interesting speculation and some sort of archaeological work on this, but nobody really knows. These things seem to be invented many times over by culture without any particular brilliance involved. And then, because they're good, they're copied. And the copies are copied, and the copies are copied, and ways of making maps develop, and so forth and so on. That's the perspective you get when you have the memes eye point of view. Now, I know a lot of people say, memes? What are they made of? This is, this is a fantastic category. I don't believe in memes. Well, I want to ask you, do words exist? How many of you say, yeah, words are in my ontology. I think there are such things as words. How many don't think that words exist? How many are too young to vote? I don't know. Um, words are very strange things when you think about them. They're, what are they made of? Sound? Ink? They are very abstract things. But they are extremely salient. You can have whole sciences like linguistics, historical linguistics, and so forth, that deal with words. Their words are part of my ontology. Well, words are memes that can be pronounced. They're cultural items that replicate and get then they're passed by replication, and there's differential replication. Not all memes are words, but all words are memes. Well, okay, I will stop. I guess right on that note. Thank you very much for your attention. Thanks for tuning in. Can't get enough of Science in the City? Follow us on Twitter or find us on Facebook and let us help you find the science community in your city. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series as well as the rest of our Science in the City program like our events series and our website. For more information on Academy membership or to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org. See you next week.